0: This is Radio Canada International, broadcasting to North America on two frequencies, in the 25-meter band at 11850 kHz, and in the 49-meter band at 5960 kHz.
1: Sunday evening to you, everyone, and welcome now to this first of our four broadcasts to North America here on RCI's North American Service. I'm Ian McFarland, and I'll be back with you in about five minutes from now with this week's edition of the Shortwave Listener's Digest for you. But to begin with, it's it's the Radio Canada Canada News. Good evening. The Canadian Minister of Energy
2: has charged Premier René Levesque of Quebec of abandoning the province's interests. Mort Lalonde made the statement in a closing speech to a meeting of the Quebec wing of the Liberal Party and called on delegates to spread the word that federalism can work. Yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau addressed the meeting and offered to reopen negotiations with Quebec on the Canadian Constitution. Quebec is the only province which refused to sign a constitutional agreement reached between Ottawa and the other nine provinces. Shortly before Mr. Trudeau's offer, Mr. Levesque told a meeting of his Parti Quebecois that the battle over the Constitution would not be over until Quebec becomes independent. The PQ, which governs the French-speaking province, says it will make independence the platform for its next provincial election. The election has not been officially announced. Canada and the United States are said to be close to signing an agreement which would allow shipments of poisonous chemical wastes to resume across the border. A spokesman for the Canadian government says only a few details remain to be resolved before the Department of External Affairs is asked to draft a formal memorandum. Talks have been going on between Canadian and American environmental officials since the border was closed to such shipments last year. Washington closed the border to prevent Canada from shipping wastes banned in Canada to the United States for disposal. A Canadian railway era draws to a close this weekend as a 20% cutback in rail passenger service goes into effect. The supercontinentals from Winnipeg to Vancouver and the Atlantic Limited from Halifax to Montreal are on their last runs, and all runs scheduled for abandonment reach their final destinations by Wednesday. The cutbacks are designed to make more money available to buy new equipment for railway lines in the Windsor-Quebec City corridor, the most populated area of Canada. The Federal Minister of Transport, Jean-Luc Pecker, has come under harsh criticism from railway users and both opposition parties in Parliament for reducing service without holding public hearings. The Legislative Assembly of the Northwest Territories has suspended its current sitting to protest against the federal-provincial agreement on the Constitution. The 22 members of the assembly have voted to travel to Ottawa to lobby for the inclusion of a native rights clause in the new Constitution. They say dropping the clause, when the agreement was reached, stripped Canada's native people of their rights. The northern politicians plan to spend four days in Ottawa where they hope to meet with Prime Minister Trudeau and the leaders of the opposition in Parliament. Officials in Washington say the man accused of trying to assassinate President Reagan tried to hang himself today, but was cut down by U.S. Marshals. A spokesman for the U.S. Department of Justice says John Hinckley Jr. made the attempt in a military prison. He has been taken to hospital at Fort Meade, Maryland, and is listed in satisfactory condition. Seven people in the United States and one in the Canadian province of British Columbia died in storms over the weekend, which disabled ships, washed out beaches, and left hundreds of thousands without electricity. Six other people are reported missing. The storms affected the Atlantic and Pacific coasts, extending from California to British Columbia in the west, and from Florida to Virginia. The U.S. Coast Guard says a tanker with 25,000 barrels of liquid asphalt ran aground off Hampton, Virginia, and a barge loaded with liquid fertilizer is adrift off of Cape Hatteras in North Carolina. Another barge has been taken in tow after snapping its moorings off Virginia. Authorities are looking for two people missing from a boat off San Francisco and for three others from a boat off the coast of Oregon a search for a fisherman in a canoe off North Carolina has been called off. Leaders of Solidarity Free Trade Movement in the Polish region of Silesia are said to have asked their members to select candidates for local elections. Such a move could have profound political repercussions as it goes against existing electoral procedures under which the communist-controlled National Unity Front chooses all candidates for electoral office. That was news. Now a look at the Canadian weather. Rain, showers or cloud are expected everywhere in the country and snow flurries are forecast in parts of Alberta. Toronto will be the warmest major city in Canada with a forecast high of 14 degrees. That was news. I'm Greg Jangro.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Shortwave Listener's Digest. I'm Ian McFarlane, and as always, it's really great to be back with you once again. At the start this week, we're going to take a dip into the technical mailbag for an interesting question from Dean Markich of Prospect, Pennsylvania, in the USA. Dean is one of our younger listeners. He says in his letter that he's 14. And his question is this. On a future uh, Shortwave Listener's Digest, could you please explain what a satellite proton effect is? During the last week on the uh, WWV propagation forecast, it keeps mentioning that the satellite proton effect is in effect. Well, Dean, the satellite in this instance is the satellite which monitors, collects, and relays the information back to Earth on what's happening up on uh, outer space. And the proton effect part of that announcement refers to protons which are emitted by solar fires. These particular protons are thought by scientists to be associated with the polar cap absorptions, and when a polar cap absorption or PCA event occurs, the effect on radio signals passing over the polar regions is such that nothing gets through, all of the signal is absorbed. Quite often, the uh, solar flare which has caused the PCA event to occur in the first place may have actually died down, but the PCA itself continues for many days. When the energy in a given solar flare is high enough, the solar protons produced will be an indicator of an aurora. And this will in turn tell you that there will be a low-level auroral display, otherwise known as the aurora borealis or northern lights. Or if it occurs at the south pole, it would be the aurora australis or southern lights. And what this will tell you is whether or not low-altitude absorption will occur on the transmission path. This sort of low-altitude auroral display is usually crimson in color. The higher-altitude auroral displays, which are blue and green in color, are produced by solar electrons rather than protons. And these don't have as great an effect on signal absorption as the, uh, the protons do. According to David Meisel, who is an astronomer and propagation expert and uh, an oftentimes contributor to this program, This is now one of the accepted scientific means of forecasting a polar cap absorption event. David, by the way, is uh, the one who I consulted for the answer to this question. So we tried to keep it simple so that we wouldn't confuse you with the answer, Dean, and I hope we were able to set things straight for you. In his letter, Dean also suggested that a series of talks on propagation in general would be a good topic for a future edition of the program, or future editions, I guess I should say, Well, this is something we have, in fact, done on a number of occasions in the past, Dean, but I don't think that we've done it since the DX Digest program began, so we might just take you up on your suggestion in the not-too-far-distant future. One of our British listeners, Arthur Schubert of London, England, whom I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of times at European DX Council conferences in Europe, wrote to us a while back to ask about single-sideband transmissions, and Arthur writes, We're hearing quite a lot about stations in the future using single sideband. Has RCI any intention of using this mode or carrying out tests? In the future. It means a transmitter alteration. It also means that the receiver manufacturers will have to incorporate a highly efficient BFO. In all future shortwave receivers. Well, Arthur, uh, we're not running any tests on single sideband at the moment here at RCI. We have been taking part, though, in some tests that uh, Swiss Radio International uh, has been running in recent months. And uh, at this point, I'm not too sure just what the result of that uh, test was. But as far as the uh, single sideband goes, it really isn't possible for RCI or any other shortwave uh, broadcasting station to do anything in the way of a decision on this until the, uh, the World Administrative Radio Conference takes place the one that was uh, put off from Work 79, and this is due to take place uh, in 1984. At that time, it'll be decided just what sort of an approach to single sideband is going to be taken by the uh, member nations of the ITU, because uh, until that is decided, there's not much anybody can do, because uh, along with that, there will probably be a decision on maximum transmitter power. And uh, if you recall the interviews that I did uh, some time ago with George Jackson, the former head of RCI's uh, engineering services, there is a fair likelihood that there will be a maximum power limit of about 250 kilowatts. But at this point, nothing is certain. So uh, along with the decisions on single sideband will uh, be decisions on just what type of single sideband transmission will be used. Because uh, we have to keep in mind the fact that... uh, Receivers, in the majority of cases, especially in the third world, are not equipped to receive single sideband stations, so if we can go to some type of uh, single sideband transmission that uh, all these receivers are capable of coping with, then so much the better. It will uh, certainly uh, be a lot better and a lot easier on the listening audience until such time as the shortwave manufacturers have time to catch up with new developments. But uh, we will be covering the uh, the upcoming WARC conference in some detail here on uh, the Shortwave Listener's Digest, and uh, no doubt this is one of the aspects of it that will be covered in those uh, in that series of interviews. So you can uh, keep that in mind for in the future, and we will be uh, getting into that in the new year as we uh, approach the WARC conference. And that's all we have time for on the mailbag on this occasion. For the next few minutes now, we have some news from ANARC and the Handicapped Aid Program to pass along to you. And with that report, here's Jeff White.
3: Thanks, Ian. Last week here on the SWL Digest, you mentioned David Monson's live coverage of the 1981 ANARC Convention on the Belgian radios shortwave service. Well, in the October ANARC newsletter, you'll find a profile of David Monson, as well as information on how you can obtain a copy of David Delphi records. You can get a copy of the October Anarch newsletter for 50 cents in North America or three international reply coupons overseas by writing to Anarch, 1500 Bunbury Drive. That's B-U-N-B-U-R-Y. Whittier, W-H-I-T-T-I-E-R. Whittier, California, 90601 USA. I'll repeat that address in a minute. Those of you who were at the 1981 Anarch convention may remember meeting Jim Tedford, the representative from the Miami Valley DX Club and Nan Hawthorne, one of the lady DXers present. Well, we've recently received word that Jim and Nan will be married on December 20th in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The two got to know each other through shortwave listening. They're both members of several anarch clubs as well as the Handicapped Aid Program. Our congratulations to Jim Tedford and Nan Hawthorne. I'm pleased to report a lot of progress at the International DXers Club of San Diego. President Larry Brookwell says the group has grown from a small regional organization to an international club with nearly 300 members. Its monthly bulletin focuses on technical articles and reviews of DX receivers and accessories. NRT has two member clubs that concentrate exclusively on medium wave, or AMDXing. The National Radio Club, NRC, and the International Radio Club of America, IRCA. RCA has just elected a new president, Don Kieske, of San Francisco, California, and a new secretary-treasurer, Rich Segalis, also of San Francisco. Many of our NR clubs hold regular local meetings in various parts of North America, and at least two of them have found a good way to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Both the American Shortwave Listeners Club and the Radio Communications Monitoring Association have combined club meetings and work sessions. That is to say that they collate their newsletters and prepare them for mailing at the club meetings. A combination of work and socializing. If you'd like to get a list of all Anarch clubs, including the ones that hold local meetings, send a self-addressed stamp envelope or two international reply coupons to NARC, A-N-A-R-C. And here's the address once again. Anarch, 1500, Bunbury Drive, Whittier, California, 90601. 90601- USA. Now let will switch over to Ken Burgess for a look at happenings at the Handicapped Aid Program.
4: Ruth Walrath of Marshall, Missouri needs to know who is reading what magazine and for whom. If you are reading any material for a Blind Handicapped Aid Program member, contact Ruth Walrath at 432 North Lyon Street, Marshall, Missouri, 65340 USA. the USA still needs receivers for its Receiver Loan Program. If you have one no longer in use, please contact Ruth again, stating what price you're asking, if any. She'll contact you and let you know the details on how and to whom to ship the receiver. Her address once again, Ruth Vollrath, V-O-L-L-R-A-T-H, 432 North Lyon, L-Y-O-N, Street, Marshall, Missouri, 65340. On more or less the same subject, Jim Conrad in Waterloo, Iowa, would like to hear from those who have information of interest that is blind, visually impaired, or, for that matter, any other handicap at all. It will be printed in the HAP report of the Anarch Newsletter if it's of general interest. Jim Conrad's address is 545 Kirkwood Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa, 50701. 545 K-I-R-K-W-O-O-D Avenue, Waterloo, Iowa 50701. If you're a handicapped amateur radio operator or know of one, the twice-weekly disabled operator's net is going strong on approximately 3575 kilohertz, plus or minus a few depending on interference. Check it out Mondays and Thursdays at 1015 GMT. The net control usually is Lindsay Sykes, who operates club call sign VK3APU. Another net for disabled operators is the white Stickholders net. Thursdays at 800 GMT on 3600 kHz. This net originates from New Zealand. The proposals for a HAP PAM net fell through previously, but HAP Australia is trying again. This time on 14290 kHz at 600 GMT Sundays. It's proposed to be held the first Sunday of each month. Robin Harwood will act as
1: net control station for both previously mentioned nets. Well, thank you very much, Ken. And also to Jeff White. Those two uh, ham radio nets sound most interesting indeed. And while we're on the subject of HAP, I have a bit of a PS to add to Ken's report, and that is a new mailing address for the Canadian branch of HAP. And this is the address to use for general correspondence with CHAP. And it's different from the uh, one used for ordering HAP tapes, just in case anybody is going to be a bit confused. The new address for CHAP in general is Canadian Handicapped Aid Program, Post Office Box 3096, Station F, that's F for Frank, Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. And the uh, postal code is N1W3P5, P for Peter. That address again, Canadian Handicapped Aid Program, P.O. Box 3096, Station F for Frank, Scarborough, Ontario, Canada, Canada postal code M1W3P, for Peter, 5. And another P.S., just uh, for good measure, two weeks ago here on the Shortwave Listener's Digest in his report from HAP in Europe, Jonathan Marks mentioned two new tapes which are available from HAP. The one which he played excerpts from was uh, New Year Nonsense from the Netherlands, a very humorous tape, and the other new tape which he didn't have time to give you any details on is called The Hitchhiker's Guide to DXing. And this is the series which is actually now running on Jonathan's media network program on Radio Netherlands. The fourth episode of the series was heard just a couple of weeks ago. Episodes one and two are now available on cassette tape through the Canadian and British branches of HAP at the addresses that Jonathan mentioned in his report two weeks ago. The price of the tape is also two pounds sterling or five dollars in Canadian or U.S. currency. And just to tantalize you a bit, here's a taste of this new tape for you.
5: It's estimated that psychologists, psychoanalysts, psychotherapists and others with a leaning toward the psyche have devoted literally thousands of seconds to the study of the shortwave Esther. They calculated that the average SWL spends well over a day annually just listening to DX Jukebox. A couple of weeks trying to catch up with the news, does three times his fair share in keeping the post office in business and came up with lots of other end-to-end statistics. To Oliver Pass, though, living on a small farm in Helderland, there was just one word to sum up shortwave listeners. Misunderstood. Nothing seemed to work out as it said in the handbooks. Friends were not amazed at his QSL collection. They thought the Math Pass was that household bleach to clean round the bend, and they couldn't understand who in their right mind wanted a lesson to Bulgarian folk music at three o'clock in the morning. But Oliver had an extra problem. I think you are up here in the radio shack
3: again. I'm turning into a DX widow here. Every time I talk to you, all I get
5: is, hmm, yes. Or, hmm, no. Or if you're really in a good mood, can you verify that, dear? You haven't spoken to me since I made Christmas cards out of those pretty postcards you keep getting.
1: But they were rake USLs. They
5: cost a fortune. Precisely. Oh, come on. Shortwave listing is the most exciting hobby you can have. Up here, you can tune into the world, picking up distant stations from places you could never afford to visit, writing to these people, and making hundreds of new friends all the time. And losing a couple of hundred around here. What a waste. And so it seemed. Until one day, when Radio Banana in the Caribbean announced the results of its X1X anniversary competition. Good evening,
3: imperialists. Tonight we bring you a commentary entitled, The Reactionary Bourgeois Imperialists Can Never Crush the Hegemonism of the Aggressive Revisionists to Counteract the Revolution. This is followed by a song for
1: all geologists. But first, the winners of our essay contest. Well, if you're interested in the results of that radio banana contest, I'm afraid you're going to have to buy the tape. Sorry about that. Well, coming up next here on the Shortwave Listener's Digest is something you don't need to be a hitchhiker to take advantage of. The receiver is the only prerequisite. Joining us now is Glenn Hauser with this week's DX News. And who knows, it may even include some additional information on Radio Banana. Mitch Sands at Arkansas
3: has been hearing the Radio Nacional Angola on 5285. Picking around 2300 with a clandestine program in Portuguese sounding like Radio 17th of November. A Voice for Free China is coming in better than usual at 0300 on 17800. Say Rolf Gunner in Colorado, Richard Wood in Missouri, and Chris Lovell in Massachusetts who made these recordings. This means the board China transmitted to North America, Australia, and New Zealand. At the same time, I'm hearing a station on 23650, presumably two times 11825, but not parallel to Taiwan 17800. Jim Conrad informs us that BRT Belgium at 2230 to 0, 0100 moved November 13th from 9515 to 9870 for North America and 11695 in parallel for South America. 11860 was never used. QTH Africa and Paul Carjanis say Mauritania 4845 drifts as much as 30 kilohertz in one evening. BBC monitoring service founded on 4820 oh, variable, November 2nd and 4th. And BBC MS says Radio Uganda domestic service was South Africa on 9730. English news at 04, 7 and 10. Meanwhile, Sudan's shortwave is inactive, with 5039 not heard since late September. BBCMS says voice of Iranian Kurdistan is now on 7085 variable at 1230 to 1515. Voice of Iraqi Revolution at 1600 to 1700 is heard around 6905. These items from Australian DX News. Soviet Wirakun in Sri Lanka says... Indonesia... ...and moved. 2290 variable, replacing 3905 until sign-off 1600. And Salat noted voice of the people of Malaya on 7050 variable at 1200 to 1330 and 1430 to 1530. Mike Willis read Afghanistan domestic service at 1338 on 7197. Padula notes that Bangladesh plans to add four new 250 kilowatt transmitters. New frequencies registered, but not yet in use. In English are 11820 and 17890 at 0445 to 0515, along with 15400 and 7220. 1230 to 1300, just lower power on 21670, 15280, 11725. 1815 to 1915, high power on 15150 and 15285, along with 11765 and 9540. Robert Jones and Alok Dasgupta say KTWR Guam is using three transmitters, not yet four. English now scheduled at midnight to midnight 30 on 17875 and 15265. Midnight 30 to 0130 on 17875. 0800 to 0930 on 11840. 0930 to 1000 on 9625. 1530 to 1600 on 9640 so the last repeat of DX Listener's Log on Friday is one hour later, at 1545. Broadcasting Magazine says November 28th is the target date for the new Radio Caroline, anchored about the same spot off Britain as the old one. Besides the medium wave transmitter, somewhere between 600 and 700 kilohertz, reported earlier to be below 600, Tom Gavaris points out that report says a second transmitter will operate on an undisclosed shortwave frequency. Greg Bears and John Campbell say UK Pirate, Atlanta Radio, will test to North America with 20 watts, November 22nd at 0530 to 0830 GMT, on 6240, instead of the usual 6225 and 6300. Tony Clift received a notice from Quebec that the voice of the letter H, -H -H CHHH, would be on the air starting at 0815 GMT in November on 6445 Thursday morning. Joel Rubin reports that San Francisco FM station KALW is now carrying, As It Happens on 91.7, Monday to Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Reg Watson in Ontario says the new permanent host is Elizabeth Gray. Michael Collier in New York notes that Stephen Fraygood is back during the shortwave listening segment on the first hour of Monday Morningside from CBC Radio. That would be 1413 to 1500 on the northern service, 11720 and 9625. For
1: SWL Digest, this is Glenn Hauser. Well, thank you, Glenn. Perhaps next week you'll have some news about Radio Banana. Hmm? And once again, our digital hourglass has allowed all of its sand to slip to the bottom and give us a signal to move on so we don't have much choice. But fear not, we'll be back in seven days with another bundle of shortwave goodies for you including the start of Larry Magny's new series of equipment test reports. In the meantime, this is Ian McFarland wishing you all the very best of luck, good listening, and cheerio for now.
0: And so we conclude this transmission from Radio Canada International to North America in the 25 and 49 meter bands. Listeners in North America are invited to stay tuned for a broadcast in French following next on 5960 and 11845 kilohertz. We'll be back again in English in half an hour, transmitting to North America in the 25-meter band at 11845 kilohertz, and in the 49-meter band at 5960 kilohertz. We enjoy getting your letters and comments. And if you'd like to write us with a comment, with a question, with a suggestion, or to ask for our free program schedule, Our address is Radio Canada International, Post Office Box 6000, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. The postal code H3C3A8. Now, good night from Radio Canada International.